Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the eastern border. As I'm still in the farm, I wanted to make something, you know, interesting and nice and animal-related. And this led me to an episode where I have to start by informing you guys that uh, this might, well, be traumatic to some people, and that this episode is not kid-friendly. A few of my are, I think, but this is definitely not one of those. This is quite a dark one. And it's about animals in the Soviet Union, yes. I... Won't be going into detail about Pavlov, mind you. I specifically went out of my way not to get into um, Pavlov's experiments and whatnot, because I think I've done an interview with someone, and it's one of the past episodes of the show. So no Pavlov here, but uh, the rest of the stuff is, in itself, quite interesting, and there are quite a few studies about animals that kind of need to be told here. For that, though, uh, remember to visit rusansov.com and use our promo code EASTERNBORDER at the checkout to get your 10% discount, or just click on the banner in our webpage, theeasternborder.lv. And, you know, you can get all sorts of cool Soviet stuff there, and uh, Soviet and avant-garde and everything. It's not just, you know, Soviet the hammer and sickle everything. And we'll also be uh, shipping off uh, some of our own t-shirts with our own art soon. And finally, yeah, you can also support the show because, you know, as I said in the previous episode up until the end of this month, I'm on a farm and uh, I'll be moving. That'll be expensive, obviously. Yeah, you can just click the donate button on theeasternborder.lv or become our patron at patreon.com slash theeasternborder and we will be extremely thankful for that.
But yeah, let's talk about how, how and why the Soviets used animals for the glory of communism to build communism. And in my first case, which I want to mention and which is uh, one of the least known events out of all of this, quite literally, I would like to start this episode with the Ryazan miracle. Uh, that has nothing to do with the Ryazan bombings and the mystical Ryazan sugar. In 1999, we did an episode on that one too. Alternative names for this is either Ryazanske Chuda, which is Ryazan miracle, Ryazanski experiment, or Ryazan experiment, or Ryazanske aventura, or Ryazan venture, which was a um, scandal resulting from a massive propaganda campaign in support of the Soviet planned economy and organized by the Communist Party Committee of Ryazan Oblast in 1959. This was interesting because, you know, the Soviets always tried to work harder. Because on May 22nd, 1957, Nikita Khrushchev, our good old buddy, Kukuruznik, the guy after Stalin, kind of the uh, bit more lax, yet quite, well, somewhat incompetent farmer guy, yeah, he made a speech at the regional meeting of the Soviet agro-industry representatives in which he um, kind of started his slogan. The famous slogan which is basically heard by everyone and known by everyone who's ever, you know, had to deal with anything Soviet-related. Dagnaiti peregnaiti Ameriku! Or, catch up and overtake America! It's kind of a leapfrogging thing. And that was a big part of propaganda because, you know, this... Dagnaiti peregnaiti! It started already in, like, early 20s, and it was in 1917, kind of a Lenin paraphrase, which praised the superiority of the Marxist economy, which basically stated that build major goals and that Marxist economy was superior. So, you know, besides the slogan and putting it in as a national kind of a goal to achieve, Khrushchev promised to overtake the United States in terms of major economic indicators, and a complete building communism by 1980. Which is funny, because recently we found a, a time capsule uh, from, like, 1960 in Russia, where um, those guys are writing to the future Soviets, we should all already be living in communism and talking with space civilizations, which, well, didn't quite happen. One of his goals, besides other goals of various productions and everything, one of the goals stated in the speech was to triple the amount of meat produced in the Soviet Union within the following three years. However, well, the farmers collectively, pun intended, looked at each other, chuckled a bit and said, well, uh, how, how do you even... I mean, we have three years and we have to triple the meat production. I mean... And then various studies happened, and some people just faked it. You can do your super plan cheating thing by, you know, they did it in other agricultural programs, like for wheat. They just, you know, stuffed in the hay with the wheat and just, you know, declared that to be a great success. And in metallurgy, they uh, just, you know, they, they made all sorts of useless things just to basically catch up on the plan. But tripling meat production, it's kind of a, you know, hard affair to do in just a few years because cattle and other livestock, they take time, and um, you may intensify the labor, but that doesn't mean that your cows are going to grow any faster and stuff, so that was interesting. 
And Khrushchev, however, was a farmer, so he should have known that, but not like anyone really cared. But literally, as the farmers just didn't really understand how to physically do that, well, obviously, implementation remained far from any such lofty goals. Basically, a year after the promise had been made, the production had not grown, and the Soviet Union was still experiencing food shortages. It's a thing when, when you do the with the corn and the steps and you ruin the ecology and then you then you do stupid 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 things. So obviously obviously famines are to follow. And Ryazan Affair is one of those where famine did follow even harsher. Khrushchev expressed his discontent, that's to put it mildly, and that's a polite phrase from a source, but Basically, he yelled at people in the party and was angry. And towards the end of 1958, in the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, they issued a circular to OBCOMs, regional party committees on the oblast or district level, to take decisive action to ensure improvements in meat production in 1959. But like I said, you know, tripling your meat production in in such a short period of time Yeah, that doesn't happen. But then, a man by the name of Alexei Larionov comes in. Oh boy, he's kind of like Osta Bender in this story, except way more tragic. He was the first secretary of the Ryazanyobkom, which was the head of the region of the Communist Party in the Soviet system. Basically, he was the actual guy running the whole Ryazan district. It had its own kind of little Duma, but it didn't matter because, you know, He's the Communist Party head of the region, so he runs it. And um, if Khrushchev, being a farmer, uh, announced unrealistic goal of uh, tripling the amount of meat produced in three years, which was impossible to do, and dumb, and farmers just didn't know what to do even, how to achieve this, this Larionov guy, he's smarter than that. He take it very seriously. He announced an even more ambitious goal, tripling amount of meat produced in the Razanya Oblast, within one year, the year of 1959. The promise, despite being totally unrealistic, idiotic, and extremely, extremely just stupid, was confirmed at the Regional Party Conference. On October the 12th, 1958, Larionov delivered the promise to Mr. Khrushchev in person who became excited by the initiative. And the dumbness just starts here. On January 9th, 1959, the promise was published in Pravda, the official party newspaper at the time. The publication was obviously rushed by Khrushchev, in spite of objections from the Agricultural Department of the Central Committee, because obviously, you know, it's impossible, everyone knows it's impossible, but... So you can't really do anything. And, yeah, the challenge is met by several other regions, including Stavropol and Krasnodar. But, yeah, they never went into such levels of horror that actually happened. Even before starting its ambitious program, the Razan region received several awards. In February 1959, the region was awarded with the order of Lenin himself. But the problem was, now kinda they had to do the thing... To meet the promise they made, the insanity. So, basically, in order to meet the promise that the crazy guy Alexei Lodionov made, he forced all the farmers in the region to slaughter 
all the bovine herd of 1959, as well as about 85% of its dairy stock. In addition, all cattle reared by kolkhoz farmers in their private households, because you know, if you had your own cow in your own tiny little allowed space besides the kolkhoz, that was appropriated temporarily, in air quotes, and slaughtered too. Uh, yeah, just a side note, just to remind you, people were fully collectivized at the time, and all the farmers were forced into these kolkhoz, these collective societies of farmers, and the Soviet Union, it had trouble feeding itself. You know, the kolkhoz were extremely unproductive under the system, and the people just, you know, they got paid in produce, but it was just dumb, because the plans were idiotical. So they basically fed themselves in the countryside by having their own little plot of land where they grew some stuff for them to eat. Everyone had a you know, a granny in the countryside that pickled some stuff, and, and that continued until later years. But the government officially limited how much land you could have, you know, next to your household, and it was strictly regulated because people from the kolkhoz uh, ordered by the party. You have a field around your household in the countryside, but if, if you exceeded the allotted tiny little kind of plot of land that you could use on your own or something, even by a single square meter, the party would just send people with uh, heavy agricultural techniques and everything, like tractors and stuff, and they would just plow through that and destroy that little plot of land. Why? Because, you know, if people could feed themselves and not rely on the system and be half-starved, then they would, you know, have some power of their own. They wouldn't need the state so much. And that's a nice little thing, but it concerns agriculture, so... So now you know. But yeah, everything is appropriate. Even though they killed everything and appropriated everything. The collected amount was still not enough to meet the target. So, Alexei Larionov is a smart Soviet man. So what he does, what do you do in the situation where you've basically slaughtered everything that you can kill even kind of, you know, the livestock that would be supposed to be there for the future, and 85% of your dairy cows, everything from the private households, again, putting people into starvation, and it's still not enough because you have to deliver all this to Moscow. Well then, <laughs> Larionov is a smart Soviet man, so he decided and ordered the Obkom, the party committee, and the whole region to purchase meat in neighboring regions. By reallocating funds from other sources, such as the purchase of agricultural tools and construction, which was kind of, you know, they basically, and the funds and the resources they were given for intensifying the production of agriculture and everything, because, you know, that was the goal to intensify the production of meats and various other substances, but we're talking specifically about meat here. Yeah, he just basically said, well, wheat can wait. We have this promise to do. We needed to invest funds in getting better technology for our kolkhoz in the district. No, not going to happen whether they, they're going to do. All of their cattle have been slaughtered already. So he used all the funds reserved for basically industrializing the uh, agriculture to just buy more meat from other regions. This can't end badly, you guys. This simply cannot end terribly, right? Right? Well, now, on December 16, 1959, Reza Nyobkum was able to announce that the region delivered 150,000 tons of meat to the state, which was three times the amount delivered the previous year. 
On top of this, the regional authorities, after they've done all of this, Mr. Larionov has nothing on his mind but pure success. He promises to deliver 180,000 tons in the next year. On December 27th, 1959, the success was announced by Khrushchev himself at the Communist Party's kind of total plenum on further development on agricultural production. Also, Larionov, for all of this, was awarded the title of Hero of Socialist Labor. However, in 1960, production of meat in Razonyablast plummeted to 30,000 tons. Since, well, for obvious reason, the mass slaughter had reduced the number of cattle by 65% in comparison to the level of 1958. To make matters worse, Kolkhoz farmers whose private cattle were temporarily appropriated the year before refused to process and work on Kolkhoz land. Because obviously, you know, you just took my source of milk and just slaughtered it for no bloody good reason. And yeah, there were protests and oppressions, but they just didn't work. They just decided that this is bullshit and we're not going to work for it. This, together with all the lack of investments in agriculture, halved also the amount of grain produced in Ryazanyoblesh. And by the fall of 1960, it became totally impossible to hide the affair. In September 1960, Larionov, Mr. Alexei Larionov, the greatest agricultural mine on the planet Earth, was dismissed from his post. On October the 10th, 1960, he committed suicide by shooting himself. When he finally understood kind of the consequences of his obscenely insane actions. However, even post-mortem, he was not stripped of his title of Hero of Labor, because technically he had kept the promise, right? By basically driving an already impoverished region into mass starvation, and it really couldn't feed itself. And, uh, yeah, remember that challenge thing by other regions? Yeah, you see similar events happening on a bit of a smaller scale because people were not as enthusiastic and or dumb as Alexei Larionov in other regions of the USSR resulted in a massive statewide drop in agricultural production. And around the same time, Khrushchev was oppressed with growing corn and forced this widespread planting. This is, you know, how the corn thing became popular, which totally, totally, really failed miserably. Obviously, all these events basically destroyed Khrushchev as a person, but yeah, the very fact of this Ryazan miracle at the beginning and the Ryazan affair at the end kind of shows you what the Soviet system did with all their resources and how they tried to work things out. And now, now after agricultural part, now we get to some um, even weirder stories. Hello there, thank you for tuning in into another episode of The Eastern Border. We are so happy to announce that this episode is brought to you by our friends at russansov.com. If you're looking to buy new art, don't forget to use the code EASTERNBORDER for a discount on us. Remember, head over to russansov.com and happy shopping! If, however, you want to support our show directly, head over to patreon.com or our website theeasternborder.lv to find out how you can help out. For all things Eastern Border, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Discord. And as always, thank you so much for supporting us. We really appreciate each and every one of you. That's all from me now. See you online.
This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And now that you've happily listened to how Soviet Union murdered cattle in mass, let's turn over to how... Basically, they murdered other animals. Let's start with dogs. <laughs> there were a thing called an anti-tank dog during World War II. These dogs were usually called dog mines. They were trained to carry explosives on their bodies to enemy tanks, where they then would be detonated. It did not end very well for the dogs in question, obviously. This was basically started by the Soviets following a decision in 1924 to allow dogs to aid the military. And a dog training school was set up in Moscow. The military recruited people as police dog trainers, hunters, circus trainers, animal scientists, etc. Twelve more schools were set up hot on the heels on the first one, and the Soviet dog training division started out. At first, dogs were trained to carry supplies, tracking mines, and rescuing people. Tasks at which dogs kind of excel normally, you know. However, in the early 1930s, they decided, unsurprisingly as in every such study, there would be an excellent idea to turn man's best buddy into an anti-tank weapon. Three of the schools began training dogs for this purpose. First, they were trained to carry a bomb to a tank and run off. Afterwards, their handler could detonate the bomb with a remote, or the bomb may have been simply set with a timer. Now, this didn't work, obviously. To drop the bomb, the dogs had to pull on a belt with their teeth to release it. This proved to be a bit too complex, and often the dog would simply return to its handler without releasing the bomb. Secondly, remotes were too expensive at the time to be used, practically, so timers would be used more often instead. And if the dog would return to his handler with the bomb still attached, he would have killed the handler and himself. If the bomb was released under the tank, if the tank was in motion and the timing wasn't just set perfectly, the bomb would simply explode without doing any damage. The Soviets scrapped their initial plan, but unfortunately for Fido, they came up with a new one. Rather than drop a bomb, explosives would be strapped to the dog. When the dog went under the tank, the bomb would be triggered, killing the dog, and hopefully disabling the tank. And, as if ending their life wasn't enough, the training involved wasn't exactly a walk in the park. The dogs were starved, and then food was placed under a practice tank, training them to think that food was under all tanks. After a while, additional battle sounds were added to their practice runs so that they wouldn't be spooked when they were running under the real thing. And, well, anti-tank dogs started being used in earnest in 1941, when German forces advanced on Soviet lands. Thirty dogs kicked off what would be rather lackluster debuts for the exploding dog force. These dogs were so ineffective, the Soviet military was accused of simply sacrificing them. Part of the problem was that many of the dogs refused to dive under the tanks in the field. 
They were being shot at, which hadn't happened in training, and they were understandably not willing to dive under some huge metal beast that was seemingly trying to kill them. Food can only motivate an animal just so much. You know, it's a weird. When the dogs were shot and killed before they could get into position and blow up, they were taken by German soldiers who were able to examine the weaponry and potentially copy it uh, themselves. They didn't up taking advantage. Rather, one captured German soldier claimed that they found the, rather, the entire system rather inefficient. Well, it totally was. One downside of this was that the Germans did take measures to defend themselves against the dogs, rendering their sacrifice often useless. A much rather larger problem, you could say, was that the dogs had been trained with Soviet tanks, not German ones. Soviet and German tanks used different types of fuel, and some of the dogs sniffed out the fuel they were used to and tried it off to blow up the tanks used by the Soviet military instead. Ouch. However, however, that said, the anti-tank dogs are known to have taken out at least some tanks, including at the Battle of Kursk, the largest tank battle in history, in which 12 tanks were destroyed by 16 deployed dogs. This was possibly one of the most successful anti-tank dog ventures in history. The Soviets later reported that some 300 tanks, tanks in total had been destroyed by anti-tank dogs, but obviously that was totally made up. Who just wanted to justify the program? Particularly justifying killing insane amount of dogs with so few results. However, whether they were useful or not, anti-tank dogs started to be used less and less from 1942 onwards. Though, interestingly enough, there were uh, anti-tank dogs that continued to be trained till 1996. Interestingly enough, dogs were not the only suicide animals that the Soviets used. And I'll start this part by um, quoting an article from Military.com. In the 2002 United States military exercise that pitted Iran against an invasion from American task force, the general in command of the opposition was retired Lieutenant General Paul von Ripper. Riper. I don't know. It has one eye. He used motorcycles, small fast attack boats, land-based missile batteries, and even suicide attacks against the Americans. But he forgot to use Iran's killer dolphin units. See, in 2000, the Islamic Republic of Iran acquired a number of dolphins from the Russia, ones trained to attack enemy ships, which had been originally trained by the Soviet Union. We'll get to that later. I'm just quoting from the article here. And when the funding for the project ran out, the dolphins were acquired by their former trainer, who moved them to a dolphinarium. But the public interest waned, and their caretaker was forced to sell them when he ran out of food. And uh, I just want to quote the caretaker, Boris Zurid, who was kind of responsible for the sale of killer dolphins strapped with bombs to Iran. Quote, If I were a sadist, then I could have remained in Sevastopol. Boris Zurid, their trainer, told the Russian newspaper Komsomoyskaya Pravda. But I cannot bear to see my animals starve. We're out of medicine, which costs thousands of dollars, and have no more fish or food supplements. The highly trained killer dolphins were moved from the Black Sea to the Persian Gulf after Iran purchased them, for reasons unknown. According to the Russian newspaper, Zurid's work, which supposedly continued in Iran after 2000 sale, was solely of a military nature. And, well, interestingly enough, depending on the types of dolphins used by Zurid, the original animals could still be alive, as dolphins have a lifespan of 50 years or more. He could also have trained more killer dolphins to use against Western shipping. And, well, while the United States at that time protested the sales of arms, or in this case, killer dolphins to Iran, Zurid only cared about his dolphins. Quote, and this is one of the coolest quotes in this episode. I am prepared to go to Allah, 
or even to the devil, as long as my animals will be okay there, he said. But the thing is, this is just a part of the greater story, and obviously, obviously I wouldn't be talking about this here if I didn't want to mention the Killer Dolphin program. And this also is an interesting story. Russia has not only combat dolphins right now, but also spy whales and killer seals. On April 22nd, 2019, fishermen off the coast of northeastern Norway were approached by an unusually friendly beluga whale, as was reported at the time by Norwegian periodical NRK. The adorable pale white cetacean repeatedly rubbed against fishing boat hulls, attempting to dislodge a yellow harness on his back. Two days later, the four-meter-long beluga was lured with cod fillets by a fisheries boat. A fisherman jumped into the water and removed the harness. The harness had a clip apparently for mounting a camera and the words Equipment of St. Petersburg written on a buckle. A similar yellow harness, this time mounting a camera, was seen on a sea lion trained by the Russian Navy in a 2018 Russia Today article. And as no Russian civilian research programs reported the loss of a whale, it is widely believed that the friendly beluga escaped from a Russian military program presumably training whales for surveillance of Scandinavian waters. Because you see, since 2014, Russian forces have increasingly targeted Norway and Sweden with mock attack runs and surveillance missions. Beluga whales, which can weigh up to 1.75 tons, have strong echolocation capabilities and can dive up to 700 meters deep. Deeper than all but a few military submarines. And, well, that's what the Soviets did. They trained all of them. But let's get to the dolphins. They stole this project, by the way, from the United States Navy. See, in the, the early 1960s, the U.S. Navy began training marine mammals to retrieve underwater objects and detect infiltrating swimmers. The thing is, the United States used positive reinforcement and all that stuff to train these things, because that kind of works, and the United States Navy trained them for um, purposes that are not blowing themselves up. What was then the Soviet Union Dolphin Program? Yeah, that was a bit different. Notably, by the way, the whole thing started. The original dolphins were purchased from the black market before the 1973 Marine Mammal Protection Act. So, it even starts out shady. But back to the United States. See, dolphin and whale echolocation amounted to an incredible precise form of active sonar. Furthermore, due to their higher levels of intelligence, marine mammals could be trained to retrieve objects or even drag swimmers to the surface using operant conditioning methods. And the United States Navy deployed dolphins and sea lions to guard ships in, in Vietnam and Bahrain and to search and mark naval mines in the Persian Gulf and, and all that stuff. And today, the San Diego-based marine mammal program musters around 75 dolphins and 30 sea lions, which is about half its Cold War peak. But just so you know, the United States also has a marine life program, which is a bit nicer than what has happened with all that Soviet stuff. Because in 1965, the Soviet Navy responded by opening its own marine life program on the Black Sea, based near Sevastopol on the Crimean Peninsula. Yeah, Ukraine, right? Sevastopol. Now, just a reminder about, you know, Crimea, Russia, Ukraine, all that stuff. A second center on the Arctic Ocean, the Murmansk Marine Biological Institute was opened in 1984. The Soviets feared sabotage by naval commandos, which also explains their development of a diverse family of underwater small arms. NATO benefited from the expertise of Italian Navy frogmen who, during World War II, had infiltrated Allied harbors and used limpet mines to cripple two battleships, a cruiser, and numerous other vessels. 
A declassified 1976 CIA report revealed that the Soviet Marine Mammal Program initially suffered severe deficits of scientific expertise and professional handlers. Dolphins died in droves from being fed unthought frozen fish, lack of prophylactic medical care, and inadequate environmental conditioning. Reportedly, only two out of 47 dolphins survived transportation to the facility. By 1974, the number improved to two survivors out of every 15. The report alleges that the Soviet academics lacked familiarity with operant conditioning techniques, and instead they used good old Pavlovian methods. These focused on creating positive associations while operant conditioning reinforced or punished actions, making the latter more effective for task-oriented training. Eventually, the Soviet Navy recruited circus handlers who employed competitive uh, rough play to build intimacy with the dolphins. Yeah. One of the handlers, by the way, uh, told in a History Channel program, quote, I could take a wild animal and turn it into a good military animal in three or four months. The dolphins, in, under this training, would basically deprive food, just the dogs, to make them reliant to their trainers, and the food rewards that they got for performing tricks, like killing enemy divers. The dolphins were allegedly also put in isolation tanks, which is terrible for these social animals, because they don't like to be alone. When trainers would let them out, they would be completely attached. They basically brainwashed dolphins. They even tried to control dolphins using electrodes in their brains. Through trial and error, the Soviets discovered that the animals, well, usually died. What a surprise here. There's just no reliable way to force dolphins to take orders, like go to the left or go to the right. Vadim Belayev, who also worked with the program, had stated to the media. The dolphins were trained to use a nose cone that contains a small clamp. The dolphins were trained to swim up to the diver and nudge him with the cone, which tags him so divers could find him from the surface. These cones could have probably also have been fitted with knives, explosives, and other weapons. So, this is kind of interesting. And, yeah, besides this, also object retrieval and reconnaissance was part of the Soviet program. And on one occasion, the Soviet dolphins located a prototype Medvedka anti-submarine torpedo. However, well... All of the former dolphin instructors basically uh, repeatedly emphasized that combat dolphins were trained mostly for lethal attacks. Soviet scientist Gennady Matyshov describes the tactics in an article by Nikolai Litovkin. Quote, Their main role is to protect the waters of the fleet's principal base against underwater saboteurs. For instance, the bottlenose dolphins graze at the entrance of the bay and on detecting an intruder, immediately signal to an operator at a coastal surveillance point. After that, in response to the relevant command, they are capable of killing an enemy on their own with a specialized dolphin muzzle with a spike. Matyshev goes on to describe another novel defensive scheme developed by the Northern Fleet. It sounds so weird and dumb that I wouldn't believe it unless it wasn't made by the Soviets. Quote, The naval command's idea was to deploy beluga whales at entrances to bases sentries. They detected an enemy. They were to signal their discovery to a handler who was to re- release killer seals from their cages. Supposedly, the belugas proved unsuitable in Arctic waters, so the Navy focused on bearded seals instead. These proved scary during a counter-sabotage exercise. Marine commandos were ordered to infiltrate a submarine base and noticed and mined the vessels. But we did not warn the lads whom they were would be up against. Literally a few minutes after the handlers opened the cage doors and the seals shut off into the bay, all the commandos returned to the surface and tried to make off for all they were worth. 
United States Navy SEAL Brandon Webb described a different kill mechanism in his memoir, mounting hypodermic needles full of compressed gas over the dolphin's nose. The dolphins were then trained to head back and inject the needles, causing an embolism with fatal results. Yeah, Soviets liked their death dolphins. Russia also, well, Soviet Russia, reportedly trained kamikaze dolphins to deposit mines into enemy submarines. Former handler Colonel Viktor Baranets told BBC they were trained to distinguish between the sounds of the propellers of Soviet and American submarines. However, making this work would be difficult, specifically considering, you know, their previous experience with uh, anti-tank dogs. Also, Soviets had a very interesting concept for offensive deployment. Dutovkin, from the article, states that, quote, and I kid you not, and this is insane, Bottlenose dolphins were trained for airdrops from helicopters to perform special forces missions. Insanity just continues. But the story does not end there. Wow. With the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1981, the Crimea-based combat dolphin program passed Ukraine. However, lacking funding, the trained dolphins increasingly served as tourist attractions or therapy animals. Finally, well, as we know, Boris Zurich sold the animals to Iran claiming that he liked the finances. And apparently, previous article written earlier was wrong because 26 animals, not just dolphins, but there was also a beluga whale, a couple of walruses and sea lions were transported by a cargo plane to Iran. And it is unclear whether Iran investigated the military use for military sea mammals. Most likely Ukrainian dolphins were amongst those acquired for civilian use, but, you know, who knows? Iran's long coastline facing the narrow Persian Gulf make offensive marine life operations kind of hypothetically more practical, and Tehran incidentally has accused Israel of using camera-equipped dolphins for spying. Meanwhile, in 2012, Ukraine reopened its combat dolphin program with 10 new dolphins trained to attack enemy intruders with, quote, special knives or pistols fixed to their heads. Just two years later, Kiev was about to close the program a second time when Russian forces seized the Crimean Peninsula, and refused the request to hand the dolphins back. Yeah. This is um, why I said that you should remember the Crimean annexation. Everything becomes a bit political. Some reports state the Ukrainian dolphins starved to death under Russian care. A Ukrainian spokesman claimed the quote-unquote patriotic dolphins went on hunger strike due to their attachment to their Ukrainian handlers. Russian sources have variously claimed the dolphins died because of poor treatment by the Ukrainians, or that there were no dolphins remaining in the program to start with, but, well, if there were there, then they died, obviously. However, in 2016, the Russian government issued a tender for five dolphins, three male and two female, stipulating they must have faultless teeth and impeccable motor skills. These were eventually purchased from the Utrich Dolphinarium for the equivalent of $26,000. Since then, the Russian media has profiled the new dolphin training program, emphasizing its application for lethal attacks. While the United States Navy denies having trained killer dolphins or seals, likely not entirely truthfully, Moscow, for obvious reasons, sees kind of these media optics from the Soviet era in a tad bit different light, you know. Now, I think that this is enough animal cruelty for a single episode. I know I haven't mentioned Laika and other Soviet space dogs and other space animals, which is a truly sad, sad story. But I haven't forgotten about this, 
And as I intend to return to more studies about the Soviet space program itself, I think the Laika and all the space dogs will just get get their own episode instead, as, well, this has turned into a rather lengthy one. So, no Laika for today, but know that it at least deserves an honorable mention here as one of the saddest studies in space exploration in general. Well, like I said, animals in the Soviet Union. Of course, there were good studies as well, and I think I should make a positive episode for once as well in the future, but, well, sadly, this isn't one of them. I'm not asking that you enjoyed this episode. I just hope that you learned something from it and never, ever be cruel to animals, because animal cruelty is, my opinion, one of the worst evils of mankind. Next time, we'll return to battle tanks, or maybe even the Soviet space program. I haven't decided yet fully. We will also have um, an end-of-the-month political retrospect about Navalny going to one of the most brutal prisons in Russia today. He, through his lawyers, have called it basically a concentration camp and how life is like there. And if you've listened to my prison episode, and if you haven't, please do. It's somewhere in the backlog. It's about the prisons. Uh, Know that this is one of the red zones controlled by the Russian government, which is a harsher and stricter one. It's about other kind of weird laws taken in account now. But that's all a bit in the future. For now, well, love your pets, be nice to each other, remember that happiness is mandatory, and do свидания, товарищ. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.